during the late 17th and early 18th century, a young man named Antonio Stradivari created, designed, and built a number of stringed instruments that exist until this day. As a matter of fact, there's only about 600 or so odd of them that exist to this day. Uh, the most prominent of them was the Stradivarius violin. And the viol- only a few hundred of the violins are extant or still exist to this day, but they're known as some of the most excellent musical instruments in the world. And when played, they give a tonality that no other violin can bring to a concert hall. And uh, people are just elated when they hear the sound of a Stradivarius violin. And uh, uh, like these violins, they were made, they, they have researched, and I did a little research on it because people have tried to figure out why why it sounded so beautiful and uh, what made it uh, to be such a, an awesome instrument. And they've looked into things like what kind of wood it is or how he pinned the wood together. And they, they just haven't been able to figure it out. But by design, somehow, Stradivarius built these violins that when played are just a beautiful instrument and they're unique and they're powerful and they're beautiful and they're wonderful and they're entertaining, and they're soothing. There's so many different things to the listener because the designer really thought about what he was doing when he designed this violin. Now, the same thing is true of a gift that God has given us, and it's the gift of our sexuality. God designed it to be a very powerful thing, to be something that was uh, a very awesome thing, to be a beautiful thing, to be something that actually, according to the Bible, our sexuality is an expression of the image of God that we're made in. The way that we are made, male and female, is an expression of the way that God is. Now, I want all of you to rest this morning, because if this was a Stradivarius, um, I wouldn't be here. I would be on a boat somewhere in the Caribbean. It's not. You can rest assured. If this was a Stradivarius, there's two things we'd make sure of. What? One, it was insured really well. And number two, it was really well taken care of. Like, I wouldn't just take it and toss it to you this morning and have you pass it around the crowd and then say, hey, put it back in the box when you get some time. And the same is true of our sexuality. It's something that should be handled well and should be taken care of well and preserved and shared in ways that are very intricate and very unique to the way that God has made us. And so this morning we're going to talk about that rare gift from God, our sexuality. And as we do that, we're going to dispel four cultural myths about our sexuality. Those myths are this. The first myth is that, that the myth that sex is for individual fulfillment, that sex was designed just for individual fulfillment. The second is that the myth that sex is inherently sinful or there's something wrong with it, or dirty. The third is the myth that sex is all about getting. What can I get from someone else? And the fourth myth is that the myth that sex is only something that's physical, okay? Now, I want to give a verbiage disclaimer this morning. I don't do this in very many messages, but I know that given the topic, even though I've tried to wordsmith this message so that I wouldn't have any faux pas with my words. There's going to be times where I say some phrase or word and it elicits within you a junior high boy response. (laughs) 
inner and outer. And you know what? I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm not offended by that. We can laugh a little bit, and then we'll try to move on. Because I'm sure I'll say some things, and you'll be like, oh, I can't believe he said that phrase when he's talking about that. The other day, I was texting a couple of the pastors on staff, and since I knew that they did it, I knew you were probably doing it. If these holy men of God do the same thing. <laughs> and it was the day that it was snowing, and so I was joking about like, hey, why don't we go down and get our snowboards and be like the guys at the Olympics and you know, hit the half pipe and all this kind of stuff. And then I remember, oh no, I'm a 51-year-old guy that just needs to clear the driveway, make some soup for lunch, take the dog for a walk, pick up some groceries. And, and act like I'm working on my message on sexuality when I'm really goofing off all day, okay? And, of course, they, they were all, like, you know, texting back, I would never use these words when you're talking about your t- message on sexuality. And they used all the words from the previous part of my text message. So we had a junior high interchange for about 15 or 20 minutes. So I don't expect that that won't happen with some of us this morning, too. And that's okay. That's all right. We'll just kind of laugh and move on. But I want to get started by addressing the first of these four myths that come out of our culture. And there's many myths that we could have picked for this, but we just tried to pick four that are pretty prominent. And the first myth we wanted to spell is this. Sex is not about individuality. It's about oneness. Sex is not about individuality. It's about oneness. You know, so much of our pop culture says that our sexuality is about two things. It's about individual exploration and it's about individual expression. I mean, when someone gets up in arms or someone doesn't agree with a new song or how it's been displayed by an artist uh, because of the overt sexuality of it, what do they say? Well, it's just my expression. That's how I'm expressing myself. They don't think about how the expression of their sexuality affects other people's sexuality and other people. No, it's just all about me and my individualism and my exploration and my expression, you know? And we've kind of got caught up in that whole idea of over-independence. This myth, this is a myth that you and I um, says that we'll only find fulfillment when we explore our sexuality and express it based solely on ourselves without regard for others. But the Bible, God's word, tells us otherwise about our sexuality. It tells us that exploration and expression is not simply about our own fulfillment, but it's about God's address to change an age-old need of the soul called loneliness. If we look closely at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, if you remember right, there are two accounts of creation. The first account of creation in Genesis chapter 1 says that God made everything and that it was good. And it was kind of a wide-angle view of all of creation. But then Genesis chapter 2 is a parallel to that when it zooms in on how God intricately creates male and female to address the soul need of loneliness. God again and again and again in Genesis says... He made this and it was good. He made this and this is good. Remember when you read Genesis, you're kind of, okay, he's going to say it's good. I bet you he's going to say this is good too, right? Matter of fact, when he makes male and female, he says it's very good. But then he notices something. He notices that something is not good. He said, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper that's suitable for him. And so God designs a partner for man to bless and address the loneliness of his soul. He tailors another human being 
and includes within them their sexuality, male and female, so that when Adam arises from a sleep after what I would consider is a pretty major surgery, he doesn't lay there in the bed with the IV. He jumps to his feet and he exclaims, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. And this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now you have to remember that before that, God had paraded all of the rest of creation before Adam for him to name them, for him to look at their function and to give them a name, and he did that. And it says that after that whole exercise, but not a suitable helper was found in all of creation for Adam to meet the need of the loneliness of his soul. And so God made another soul, like God in his image, a female. And the words here are used are ish and isha, that they were of the same fabric, the same thing. Man is ish and woman is isha. And together, somehow, mystically and powerfully, they reflect the image of God to this world, male and female. He created them both to address this deep need of loneliness. So sexuality cannot be just for me. It has to be something shared in that covenant bond of marriage that reflects God's good image, the designer's image to this world. It's amazing to me that Adam jumps up. He's delighted kind of breaks into a song. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. This is different. What made Eve so different? Well, she was uniquely designed as a partner for Adam to cure his loneliness. We know that. She was also a reflection of the image of God, and so was Adam. So she was a reflection of the image of God. Together, they could build a family If they utilized their sexuality, they could build a family together. And together, as husband and wife and family, they could live under the orders of God, which was what? To take care of the rest of all of creation, like God would do. And so they were under orders from God. And so she was different. She could work together with him. She could partner together with him. She was flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. In his book, Love to Stay... Sex, Grace, and Commitment, Adam Hamilton writes about this this, uh, theological foundation in the book of Genesis as he outlines three intentions that God designed for us in our sexuality as given to us by Genesis. This is the intention of the designer who made this gift for us, designed it. Powerful, beautiful gift and build it into us, the gift of sexuality. The first one involves simple biology in some ways. Sexual intimacy is a means that God divides for human beings to reproduce. But it's not as simple as that. Because it's therefore a means of co-creation with God. We get to co-create with Him. That possibility of co-creation infused within the sexual act Holiness. It made that act something awesome, something powerful, something mysterious, something godly, something creative. Hamilton writes this, We also need to recognize that God made this act of co-creation pleasurable and almost irresistible so that we would continue to perpetuate the species, to be fruitful and multiply despite the many hardships and sacrifices that go with parenting in these days. 
To this day, biology tells us that it takes a sperm and an egg, male and female, coming together to reflect the image of God to this world. It's a gift from God. It's a mysterious gift. It's a beautiful gift. It's a powerful gift. But it's a gift the designer gave to us. And we should look back and say, designer, how should I best utilize and walk in and live out this gift you've given me? The second theological principle that we get from Genesis is, the second idea that's presented is this idea of physical intimacy is expressed in Genesis. When we read that the man and the woman, they, they leave and then they cleave and they become one flesh. Become one flesh. And it's this picture of this physical bond, emotional bond, soulful bond that happens between a man and a woman when they are in sexual union together. And it says it's two become one flesh. It's this entangled embrace. The text says that they're naked and unashamed. And I submit to you that that was God's creation. That was what he said was good. And that's where he wants to take us back to. He wants to take us back to being naked. So everyone just stripped down right now. No, I'm just joking. But he wants to take a husband and a wife back there. He wants us to be the manifestation of his kingdom on earth so that we can be naked and unashamed and accepting and loving and embracing. The word picture here is not of like, you know, something where it's standoffish. The two have come together as one. It's very explicit. It's very explicit language of leaving, cleaving, becoming one flesh. This soulful bond happens. I also know that one of the most profound expressions of this two becoming one, two becoming one flesh, if you think about it, is the children that are born to them. Truly, the two become one flesh through their children. Think about it. They're the expression of that one flesh relationship. And you look at them, and my wife and I do, and say, that's you. No, that's you. No, that's you. Well, that's from your family, and that's from your family. And you see this mixture of it. And on your best days, you sit in wonder of it. Just this week, a friend of mine who's getting ready to have a child, and their child is in utero, brought in the three-dimensional pictures now that they can see of this child. It was amazing fearfully and wonderfully crafted and made that I could see this little girl whose face was forming, eyes are forming, hands are reaching. She also reflecting the image of God. Amazing. It's amazing. So that's the second thing. The third thing that it presents in, in, uh, in Genesis is this idea of being known deeply by another being. Uh, The Hebrew word is used as as a euphemism for sex, and the Hebrew word there is yada. And uh, how many of you have seen the old Seinfeld episode of yada, yada, yada? That is exactly kind of the double nuance that goes on in in Hebrew. Hebrew language and Hebrew people have these subtle, funny, double nuance jokes that go on all the time with their language. And yada meant to know. And so if you say, well, and, and he was, like in the Old Testament, if you have it translated in the King James Version, it'll say, it, it says, and Adam was with Eve, he lay with Eve, and he knew her, you know, wasn't, isn't really a way of, uh, it's not a code word, really. It means to deeply know this other person 
that's expressed through a sexual bond with them. Okay? And so there's this deep knowing of the other person, this deep knowledge of them that grows and grows as a husband and wife are married for a lifetime. It goes far beyond just sexual intercourse and becomes a beautiful bonding thing that the act of sexuality is a sign and a symbol and a part of the whole thing. It's a part of the whole mystery. So both Adam and Eve, male and female, are image bearers of God. In the Latin, we would call that the imago Dei, the image of God, ish and isha, both in his image. Genesis 1.27 says it this way, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them to reflect his image to this world. So God designed sex as a unique expression of oneness that grows through our marriage. And he also designed it to be a sacred romance, to be a passionate fire that is shared between a man and a woman. The Bible puts it this way, my lover is mine and I am his. The second myth we want to talk about today is this, sex is not sinful, sex is sacred. Sex is not sinful, sex is sacred. Often we have a distorted view of sex and sexuality. We view erotic love as degrading, dirty, pornographic. It's been that way for years in Christian circles. Martin Luther said sexual intercourse was never without sin. At the same time, the the Bishop of Paris actually said that the Holy Spirit leaves the room when a couple makes love. He couldn't even bring himself to say the word sex. But I submit to you today that they were wrong. God's word says otherwise. God created sexuality. He created man and woman to be attracted to each other, to love each other, to care for each other, to express that. And he declared it good in Genesis chapter 1. God designed sex, and it is good. And it is for our good when we don't abuse it and misuse it. And when we take care of the beautiful gift that God has given us in our sexuality. Pop culture has also hijacked our view of sex. And, you know, we, we don't really understand the design of it. I mean, how much more confusing does our sexuality get to us than when the Russian police choir sing their rendition of Daft Punk's Get Lucky at the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games? And how many of you saw this? I mean, this is confusing to me. It's funny to me, but it's funny when the guys were interviewed afterwards, you know, they're, trying to, they're interviewing them in English, and of course they grow up speaking Russian, so they're trying to interview them about it. But it's just another one of our ways of saying, I mean, the song Get Lucky is all about, it's all about me. It's all about me getting lucky, or her getting lucky, and we get lucky, and it's only physical, and it goes away, and there's no deep roots to this thing, and there's no, that's not part of it. And, and it's kind of funny to watch these guys sing that song. But it just, to me, illustrates how much we're out to lunch about our sexuality in pop culture. Just because we exploit it, just because we put it out there everywhere, doesn't mean we know what to do with it. Don't think for a minute that just expressing your sexuality, taking your violin and passing it out all over the place, is a way of thinking that you have confidence about your sexuality. You don't. You don't have confidence about your sexuality or your identity when you do that. But pop culture has said that. When I watch what happens in pop culture, 
I think this. I think pop culture is really sending us this message. They're saying sexuality is so powerful and intriguing that we're consumed by it because we're not really sure what to do with it. So we take it to the extremes of exploration and expression, but in the end, we still find that the loneliness of the soul remains. And those same people go from relationship to relationship to relationship, taking their sacred gift and passing their violin out wherever they go. Because it is powerful. Because it is intriguing. Because it is something we don't really know what to do with unless we go back to the one who designed it and get his input and his coaching about it. You know, we might be uncomfortable with the subject, but the Song of Songs is not. How many of you have ever been to a Bible study where you studied the Song of Songs? We had three people in the first service. We had one, two, three, four. We have four perverts, five perverts. No. <laughs> joking with you. Let's study the Song of Songs. What do you want to study? I want to study the Song of Songs. There's really not that many Bible studies that you can Google it. There's not many Bible studies out there on the Song of Songs. All these other, you know, parts of the Bible. Why not? Because we get a little red-faced and we read some of those words and we go, is that in the Bible really? I mean, I wish I would have known that some of those verses were in the Bible when I was in, 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 in uh, Sunday school when I was a little kid. Because I would have made them my memory verse. <laughs> Joel, do you have a memory verse? Your breasts are like twin fawns of a gazelle or whatever. But you know what? They would have marched me out just like they did for lesser things than that. <laughs> I really didn't get through too many lessons in Sunday school. They're creating a ruckus in there. But, you know, it's in there. It's in the Bible. And because God created our sexuality and he made it. He knows it's intriguing. He knows it's powerful. He knows it's strong. But he wants us to know how to handle it, how to take care of it, what to do with it, how to accept it as a gift, how to share it just in oneness, not to give it out everywhere, how to make it a reflection of him in our life. And so uh, God gives us this gift, and he wants us to build this passionate fire between one another. Song of Songs says it this way, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. Listen to that. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king take me into his chambers. Your love is more delightful than wine? Wow. My wife likes wine. <laughs> How many of you ladies like wine? You know? Yeah. How, much, how many of you ladies are willing to pass up a good goblet of wine for a lovemaking session with your husband? Don't put your hand up. <laughs> we don't want to know. More delightful than wine. You know, this, you know what the Song of Songs was written for? It was written and was read at Hebrew wedding ceremonies. They would have different parts of the wedding party and different parts of the clans and families read the different parts of it together. As a, and I'm like, wow, can you imagine that wedding ceremony? It was getting heated in there. You know what they were doing? They were blessing the bride and the groom. They were telling them, 
It's time now to take the violin, the violin that you have kept to yourself, and it's time to share that violin with your spouse in your wedding chamber. It was a blessing coming from the families, coming from the Lord, saying now is the time to do that. Our sexuality is designed to address our need for loneliness, to embrace each other, to care for one another in that covenant bond of relationship and to reflect God's image, to leave, to cleave, to become one flesh. There's a progression there. Leaving, cleaving, become one flesh. It's stated in Genesis. Our Lord stated it in the Gospels and the Apostle Paul stated again in his letters. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father. He will cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. When I do wedding ceremonies, and um, I just had a couple come up to me after the first service and say, hey, we just got engaged and we want to get married. Can we get set up our date with you? And uh, I always send them. I said, you know, you need to talk with Pastor Ron first. He does the intake interview. I don't agree to any dates while I'm standing up here on a Sunday morning because I'm sure I would end up having to do five weddings on one day if I ever did that said, if my schedule's open and I can do it, I would be honored. But we have four other pastors that can do your ceremonies too. So go meet with Ron. And so they were all excited about that. But one of the things that I love to do at a wedding ceremony, I talk about this passionate fire. This passionate fire that only the two of you are to build. No one else gets to share the fire. Only you get to share the fire. Pornography doesn't get to share the fire. Old memories of past lovers don't get to share the fire. Fantasies about someone else don't get to share the fire. It's a fire only between the two of you. That's what makes it unique. That's what makes it special. That's what makes it a gift from God, tailored for each other. And so I love to stand in front, because I know that most of these couples, when I've talked to them, their family has never given them the blessing of releasing them sexuality, releasing their sexuality in marriage. They may have given some of the prohibitions, which are good, but they've never said the word of blessing. And so I stand before the congregation and their families, and I give the word of blessing. And I have them say to each other, I'm going to build a fire with you alone. For the rest of my days, I will only share this gift with you under God. And I have them say that. And it's a powerful moment. I have many couples come back to me later and go, wow, you know what? I want it to make an indelible impression. And I want them to remember the blessing of you are released to express your sexuality within the bonds of your marriage relationship with one another and know each other deeply and fully and express your image back to God. You know, maybe some of you never got to have those series of conversations or to talk through that or walk through that. Maybe someone who did your wedding ceremony didn't do that for you or talk to you about that. I give uh, each one of the couples, usually at that time, a little book, and I tell them, make this your devotional book for your uh, honeymoon. It's called Celebration of Sex for Newlyweds, and I usually hand it to them right there. And say, make this your devotions for the next week. Because when you get back from your honeymoon, life's going to hit hard. And this is a time to just relax 
and know each other and start up this bond and begin to build the fire that will burn in your relationship for the rest of your days. One of our, our marriage ministry uh, offers a resource if you're interested in it that would help you have a couple of these conversations if you've never had. It's called Intimacy Ignited. And our, if you want to write it on your card today, if you're interested in some more information about it. If some of you feel like, it I, doesn't matter if we read this book together. It'd just be awkward to us. We wouldn't be able to discuss it and talk about it. There's been some pain between the two of us over our sexuality and our expectations over the years. And we just don't know, quite know how to, to make some of those things work. Maybe it would be time for you to just read the book and ask for one of our counselors to sit down and help you have conversation together. The best counselors, that's what they do. They just help people have good conversations over the right stuff. I've gone to counselors. They've helped me out with a lot of things because sometimes I'm just hitting the wrong place in the wrong cylinder, and they bring me together right under the right thing and help me have a good discussion with my wife or my children or someone else where I need to clear something up. So if you need to do that, that's available to you. Intimacy Ignited, you can write it in the back of your car today and say, I'm interested in more information. I'd like to talk to the marriage uh, staff about that, whatever. And we'll follow up with you, okay? We want to talk about this third myth this morning. And the third myth is this. Sex is not about getting, it's about giving. So the third myth is sex is all about getting. But God's word says it's about giving. You know, I think you know that just like this violin, if this violin is played, especially a Stradivarius, in a great concert hall. And some of you have heard this. Maybe you've been there or you've just watched it on, uh, on public television or something. Where it's a great concert hall and all of a sudden the violin comes out and it's their concerto. And they start to play it and it's like, wow, that is captivating. That is powerful. That music just pulls me in. And that's the way sexuality is. It is a powerful thing. And it needs to be used for the good. It's powerful enough to make a man do a lot of different things. And I want you to watch this video with me and see what this guy does with that powerful thing of sexuality. Hey. Hey, Dumpling. How was girls' night? Oh, it was good. They wanted to go dancing, though, so I'm... What'd you do? Not much. Just took out the trash, did the dishes, mopped, and I took out the trash, and I ironed, and I love you. I love you too. And I dusted. So. You know, babe, you look so beautiful. Thank you. Your hair, hey, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your eyes, both of them, doves behind your veil. Okay, I get it. You want to watch TV. You know me so well. I do want to watch TV. I'm tired, and I think we watched TV last night. <laughs> I'm tired, too. I just love watching TV. I could watch TV with you every night. But I don't feel like watching TV. I have a headache. Uh-oh. Prepared. You know, I don't always feel like watching TV either. It's just, it's our TV. I don't want to neglect that, you know? I'm kind of tired of watching reruns. 
Okay, excuse me. If I get something new every time we watch one of our shows, okay, I thought they were awesome. I thought they were clever. And besides, okay, we can skip the parts you don't like on the TV. Fine. Okay. Let's watch TV right now. Let's go watch the TV. What? Babe, I, I don't want to watch TV now. I mean, with that attitude. I'm going to bed. Babe. 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 Dumpling. Buttercup. Hey, how about Good Morning America? So I love those little code words for making love. You know, there's this watching TV. For a while in our house, it was skiing. My wife likes to ski, and so with our kids around, we said, hey, you want to go skiing? You know, and they were like, you know, they picked up after a while what was going on. <laughs> Took them a few years. They're a little thick. But then it was funny when my wife took up skiing again, and she started skiing all the time. And they're like, wow, you guys are really, really prolific these days. Because they didn't understand she actually was going skiing. And when we started buying equipment for her, we're going to buy some skiing equipment. They're like, what are they doing now? (laughs) So you have to kind of watch what your code words are, especially around your kids. But 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5 says this, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You know, in Paul's day, what he was writing to the couples in the church at Corinth was countercultural because the cultural norm of the day was this. A man can satisfy him sexually both inside and outside the home. In Corinth, it was a great place of great prostitutes and prostitution. And so the culture is saying, you know, Just take care of that someone else. Your wife's just there to take care of the home and to have children with and things like that. You know, all those other things that you need, you can go outside your home for. And Paul was saying, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. Not under God's design, not under the designer. All of that is available within your home. You're supposed to be having your sexual sexual and your sexual needs met together around this fire that you've built Together, build this passionate fire. So Paul is encouraging married couples to view sex as a gift from God, to accept the violin, the beautiful gift, the powerful gift, to learn how to have this interchange and make this music together, the music of love within their home. He says that even abstaining from sex is a way of giving a gift to one another. He says if you're going to abstain from sexual relations with one another as husband and wife, you should do it because you are fasting it like you would anything else so that you can spend more time developing your intimacy with God. Because that's what fasting is all about. Fasting is I give up my desire for this to peel into my desire to know God better. 
And so he said, if you're giving up as husband and wife your sexual intimacy, you should fast it for a time, you should agree on it, and together you should spend that same time in prayer before God, seeking him and developing intimacy with him. Because that intimacy with him, when you break fast, will influence your intimacy with one another, and your love and your care, and your deep knowing of one another. Our intimacy with God affects and influences our intimacy with our spouse. You know, I want to pull up a chart from last week because I realized that this kind of interchange, this idea of not getting but giving, relates back to this whole thing that Rick and Jen talked to us about last week, about the crazy cycle and the energizing cycle. Do you remember this? And they talked about the crazy cycle and the crazy cycle being there's no love coming from him, no respect, and she reacts, and then no respect coming from her, so he reacts, and the crazy cycle goes around and around and around and around and around. In the energizing cycle, there's this cycle and fulfillment of giving love and giving a respect, and it energizes a couple together. What I noticed as I was watching and looking at this last week and just thinking about it, as it relates to all of our marriage, but as it relates to our sexuality too, is that the left circle, the crazy cycle, it's all about control. It's all about being in control. Who's in control? I'm in control. I'm not giving respect. I am giving respect. I'm not giving love. Or I'm not giving love. I, it's about being in control. The second one is about empowerment. It's about what can I do to empower my spouse to live in a loving relationship with me and with God and with others, okay? Um, The left side, as I looked at it, the crazy cycle, is about living by the letter of the law. These are the rules of our home. These are the rules of our sexuality. These are the rules. You must do this. I must do that. And the right one is living by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. How's the Holy Spirit leading our relationship and our intimacy and our love for one another and our sexuality. And somebody told me this. If the left one is power and the right one is empowerment, a counselor told me this one time. He said that control is the opposite of love. Control is the opposite of love. So when we want to control our spouse by saying, no, you have to submit to me sexually, You have to do what I want sexually. That's not the empowering interchange that God wants or that God has designed for us to have. The empowering interchange is I will give myself to you and you will give yourself to me and together we'll reflect God's goodness as we let the Holy Spirit fill our home and fill us. You know, one of the best ways I've found to get the Holy Spirit to fill me and to fill our home and to fill our relationship between Debbie and I is praying for her. I have a part of my personal devotions every day where I have a prayer list of people I pray for. It's my second progression. I have three progressions in my daily devotions. My second progression is to stop judging and start praying. That's what it says. That's my progression. Stop judging, start praying. I read a few verses on judgment about how we shouldn't be judging. And then I pray... I say this phrase, Lord, replace my judgmental spirit with a spirit of blessing as I pray over these people. And I start with my wife, and I go down to my children, and I pray over my mom, and I pray over my my in-laws, and I pray over my brothers and sisters, and I pray, and I just, God, I just ask him to give me whatever prayer he wants to give me. Sometimes I'm just saying their name. But I find that when I pray over my wife, 
in a way that says, I don't want to judge her, I then find ways to empower her throughout the day. I then find things that I like about her so that when I get a Valentine's Day card, the second hand column is filled up with, this is what rocks my world about you. This is what I like about you. I like the way your eyes flash. I like the way your whole face smiled this morning when you got up. I like that you love your kids enough to stop and make them have dinner with us the other night. And you hugged your 21-year-old daughter till it was uncomfortable for her. (laughs) And she liked it too. I love these things about you. I love living with you. I love these things about you. That's the empowering, but I can't do that. I revert to Joel the legalist, Joel the power monger, Joel the one who wants to be in control and set all the stage. I only revert to the Holy Spirit when I humble myself in Scripture before the Lord in prayer. And then the Holy Spirit can infuse. Maybe today is a day for you to surrender your marriage to the Holy Spirit. See what happens under his leadership, his guidance. See what could happen if you let go and let God lead your marriage from this day forward. Power is the opposite of love, but love, love is empowerment. Love is empowerment. Tim Keller writes in his book, In the Meaning of Marriage, that early on in their marriage that they were very frustrated with each other sexually and things weren't quite happening like they thought they should happen. And he says this, when we stopped trying to perform and we just started trying to simply love each other in the act of sexual intimacy, we stopped worrying about getting and we focused on what we could give to one another. And God gave us love for each other because it's not about getting, it's about giving. You know, our culture's take on sex is that it may be something casual. It may be something we can pass around. It may be something that's just physical. But the fourth myth is this. Sex is not just physical. It's soulful. So the myth is that sex is just physical. But God's word said it's not just physical. It's soulful. It's soulful. This myth in our culture that it's just physical is just not true. Sexuality is not just a physical act. We've seen that God intended it. To be something that was deeply soulful. 1 Corinthians 6, 15-20 says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. You know that when he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. And for, and for it says, the two shall become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All their sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, Paul is not saying here that sexuality is a worse, sexual sin is a worse sin than all of our sin. What he's saying is that it causes deeper damage because it's connected to our identity deep within because we're made in that image of God and our sexuality is somehow mystically connected to our image of God and how we're made, okay? And so when we just take that gift that's a deep part of who we are, reflecting who God is, and we just pass it out as though it's just physical. It doesn't mean anything. It does mean something. And you can say it was just physical, but something deeper happened with you and that person. 
That is why we never say to somebody who's been sexually abused, oh, it was just physical, get over it, do we? No. We know something deeper happened. We know a trust was violated. We know something hurt that person in a deep part of their soul. And we would never say to them, oh, it was just physical. Because we know it isn't. And it's not just physical for us either. It's deeply spiritual. It's soulful. There's deep connections that are made within us. It is powerful. It's deeply connecting. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6 it says, Flee from sexual immorality. All their sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. You can write there next to body against their own image that they were made in. That's what Paul is saying. They're sinning against the image that you were created in. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Look as he goes on. Whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, with your sexuality. Honor God. Because it's deeply soulful. It's not just physical. And it was made by God to be expressed in that covenant relationship that Jason talked about in the first week of this series. According to Paul, Sexual sin is deeply personal. It's soulful. It's not just physical. It goes back to the fact that Genesis said we were created in the image of God. And that includes our sexuality. It includes it. And so today I ask you this question. What will you do with the gift that God has given you? What will you do with the Stradivarius that he has placed within you. It's part of you. It's not a compartment in you. It's woven into the fabric of your being, your sexuality, and it's a gift. It's a gift that he gave to you. Maybe today is the day to reclaim it as your gift. Maybe today is the day to to say, God, I, I repent of my sexual sin. I repent of the things that I've done wrong to mar the image that you have placed within me. I bring that before you today. Maybe it's a day to say, I'm not going to live by the myths about sexuality that this world perpetuates. I'm going to live by what the designer says and does and his leadership. See, the designer doesn't just set us up and leave. He infuses us with his spirit to give us on-the-job training about our whole life. And he does that about our sexuality too. Because we're made in his image and that matters deeply to God. We all have a story to tell about our sexuality. Some of you are sitting here today and you're not married yet. What will your story be when you come to your lifetime spouse? Maybe it will be this. One day I went to church and I heard what the designer had for me. And so I stopped passing around the gift God had given And I put it back and contained it until this day when I got married. And now I'm giving it to you as an expression of love from me and from Father God to one another. Let's enjoy this. Let's explore this. Let's express this. Let's love. Let's get to know one another. Let's build our relationship based on what the designer made. You can do that even today. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God gives a fresh start at the foot of the cross. And he'll give you a fresh start today 
with your sexuality. Maybe today you're a married couple here and you've never really thought about your sexuality being a reflection of the image of God that you were created in. And maybe you've lived under some of these myths too. And today is the day I say, I'm not going to live under those myths in my marriage anymore. I give my marriage and my sexuality to you, Lord. Inform it. Infuse it. Train me. Teach me. Help us to love and care for each other as husband and wife. The designer had great intention and he gave great worth and value to every one of us. He gave us a priceless gift of our sexuality that's, that is connected deeply to our identity in Christ. And so maybe this is a defining moment for you. A time of decision where you accept your design from God. In prayer right now, we can come to God. And no matter where we have been, we can get a fresh start with him. So as I talk to God in prayer, bring yourself to him too. Make the commitment of the soul that the Spirit's talking to you about this morning. Let's talk to him together in prayer. God, you are a grand designer. And you're my designer. I thank you for the gift of my sexuality that you gave me. I confess my sexual sin to you. And I ask that you forgive me. That you wipe my slate clean. Purify me and show me how to live by your divine design. I want to reflect your image through my sexuality. Thank you for dispelling the myths regarding my sexuality. So that I can embrace its true nature. Today. I embrace my sexuality as a beautiful, unique, highly valued gift from you. And I commit to take good care of myself sexually and to look out for others. I'll follow you and your design from this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray this at the foot of the cross. And I stand before you, purified by you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people say, amen, amen. I want you to take a few moments during this next song and just fill out your response cards as you get time to reflect on what God said to you this morning. with me. 